to the City on a Hill Church Forest Hills podcast. We exist to see our neighbors from every culture follow Jesus as King. We're glad you're here and thanks for listening. More information about the life and mission of City on a Hill can be found at coahforesthills.org. Continuing in our series in Genesis. If you've not been with us, we've been looking at Genesis at the beginning of September. And Genesis has really broken into two big parts. You have uh, chapters 1 through 11, which we've been looking at this fall, and we'll wrap up here in a couple of weeks. And then chapters 12 through 50. So chapters 1 through 11 is really how God created the whole, the, the whole world for people. And 12 through 20 is really how God blessed the whole world through a group of people. And so uh, we have these Genesis Scripture Journal Bibles. If you would like one of these and you don't have one of these, just slip a hand up. You don't have to go real high. If you need one, Matt here will grab get one for you. Um, this is our gift to you. There's a spot in here on the, on the side to... Don't be shy. If anybody wants one, you can have There's one right back there. Okay. Um, you can, uh, somebody's got to be first, I promise. And so, uh, but there's a space here to write on the side uh, where you can write your notes as well as, as we're going along in the series. Um, there's also some at the back if you want to grab one after the service. Uh, but we've been looking at this idea of, of God creating the world, God creating the world to be good how people messed up the world, and then the fallout of how things were messed up. We looked at Genesis 4 a few weeks ago, where, um, where uh, Cain's line, Cain killed Abel, and his line just con- continued to descend into more and more wickedness. And then last week, we looked at how God had redeemed a remnant of people, a group of people, in order to bless the entire world, which would eventually lead us to Jesus. But we saw at the beginning of chapter 6 how the world, after generations, had become more and more wicked, and, uh, and we see that God saw the sinfulness of this world. And when we see the sinfulness of this world, after 10 generations, God states that he's going to destroy the world, that the world is wicked beyond repair. This is not just a minor renovation, but the whole thing has to go. And then we come to the flood. And I think the way that we often think about the flood is kind of, it's kind of interesting. We kind of think about the flood a little bit like if you've ever watched a newscast and they're talking about this really horrific house fire. And then they kind of just gloss over and talk about like like a squirrel that's water skiing. They kind of just jump from one thing to the next. And we kind of do the same thing when we think about the flood. We gloss over all of this destruction and and loss of life. If you've ever been to a church that has a, a, a picture of Noah's Ark in their nursery, I've always found that to be really strange, right? You've got Noah all bearded and smiling, and there's a smiling giraffe. They don't show the destruction happening on the mural on the nursery wall. That, we, we don't really think about just how devastating the flood would be, and the flood is an account of judgment. It's an account of God judging the world, and for some, that is a major problem. The idea that God would judge the world, the idea that God would judge sin, that that he would look at this world, and some have even thought, how could a loving God do that? How could a loving God destroy people? How could a loving God send people to hell? How could a loving God do so? And in doing that, what we do is we question God's goodness. We question God's fairness. We question whether God is, is really, truly just. But if you remove judgment, you remove justice from the equation, you have a God who never judges, you actually create a bigger problem. Because if there is not a God who judges sin, there's not a God who wants order in the world, there's no way to deal with evil. There's no way to deal with the increasing corruption and violence we see here in Genesis chapter 5 and 6. And there's no way to do this. And so a better question would be, how could a loving God not judge sin? 
How could a loving God not bring judgment? Because God's judgment is both his mercy and his justice flowing from love. It is both his mercy and justice flowing from love. Because when we look at the attributes of God, who God is, God is never one thing at the expense of another. He's never wrathful at the expense of his love. He's never just at the expense of his mercy. He is all of those at the same time in perfect accord. And so what we see from the judgment, from from the flood, we see a real way that God can both deal justly with the world, but also extend mercy to the world. So this morning, we're going to be looking at the first part of the flood. We're going to be looking at the end of chapter 6 through chapter 7. We'll pick up in chapters 8 and 9 next week and see how things resolve. But today, we're going to see what the, the flood was the result of. We're going to see what the flood reverses, and we're also going to see what the flood reveals. So firstly, the flood was the result of a corrupt world. The flood was the result of of a corrupt world. Last week we saw at the end or the beginning of chapter six that God saw that the world was evil, that it was filled, the world was filled with evil, that our hearts were filled with evil, and that God was going to destroy the world. He says he's going to blot everyone out. But he also says that he's going to show grace to Noah. We see in chapter six, verse eight, but Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord, unmerited grace. God shows grace to Noah and says he's going to work through Noah. And as we look at the beginning of our passage today in verse 11, we see that God makes a pronouncement. He makes another statement of destroying the world. He says in verse 11, now the earth was corrupt in God's sight and the earth was filled with violence. And so why did God see fit to destroy the world and bring judgment? It's because of corruption, because of violence. In verses 1 through 5, last week, we looked at how people were coming together in a particular way, relationally, that didn't honor God, and apparently there was some corruption and violence involved with that, that there was people being used and abused relationally, Uh, people were power-seeking. We see the Nephilim, who would have been these great, giant people, Um, the the, the men, uh, mighty men of renown, who would have been going after achievement, really kind of divorced from any sort of character. And to get across the idea of just how corrupt the world is, we see in these short few verses, in verse 12, it says that God saw the earth, and behold, it was corrupt. That's one, for all flesh had corrupted their way on the earth. So within three verses, God says the word corrupt three times. You want to know how corrupt the world was? It was really corrupt. When the Bible uses repetition, it's highlighting something to gain our attention and, and help us see that the world is corrupt beyond redemption seemingly. It's, it's, it's beyond a, a turnaround. It's, it's beyond them being able to repair it themselves. I, I'm, a, I'm a giant baseball fan, and, and I love the Red Sox, and, but there was a game back in July where the Red Sox lost 28-5. to That sounds like a football score, but as New Englanders, we know if you're down 28-3, there's hope, right? Like, we can make a big comeback here. And there's probably that guy holding hope out in the sixth inning saying, we're going to make it. We just scored a run. It's going to get better. And that's kind of how we view the corruption of the world. We see how bad the score is. We see how broken everything is. But often we say, well, you know, it's not that bad. It's getting better. We see the little victories and we say, man, like, look, look at this. And it's kind of like scoring a run in the bottom of the seventh when you're down 27 to four. There's no hope for a turnaround here. The world was so corrupt and so violent. The verse 11 says that the earth was filled with violence that all flesh 
was corrupt. And God sees this. He, he views this. He sees the depths of our world and the depths of our heart. And he says, I, I have to bring judgment on it. He, he's serious about sin. He's serious about the corruption and violence in our world and dealing with it. And so in verse 13, he says that he's going to destroy the world. And he actually repeats this three more times throughout the passage. He says this in verse 17, for behold, I will bring a flood of waters upon the earth to destroy all flesh. He says this in chapter 7, verse 14, where he says in, uh, or that this is going to happen. Everything is going to be destroyed. Verse, um, uh, verse, seven, uh, verse uh, 21 through 23, all of these things, he's going to blot them out. He's making expressly clear how serious he is about our sin. Now, you may object to that. You may object to the idea of God not being fair. You may say that he's, he's being harsh here. He's being rash. But again, you have to remember that this was after thousands of years of patience. I mean, you may be patient, but are you thousands of years worth of patience? God is, is patient with his creation. He's waiting for them to return because he also loves his creation. What did God say about creation? He said that creation was good. He said the people were created very good. And so as God is bringing judgment on the world, he's not doing so vindictively. He's not doing so spitefully. He's not doing so rashly. He's doing so because the goodness of creation is at stake. He's, he's protecting, he's preserving, he's restoring what people had messed up, what people had soiled, that he wants creation to thrive because he wants the people that he created to thrive. But if we look at this, if the world is filled with violence and it's filled with corruption, we see people getting abused and killed left and right. Whenever you see a news story or read a news story or see another tragedy on Instagram or Facebook or Twitter, we look at that and we're gripped, we're brokenhearted. But often when we think of judgment, we just think of it in terms of personal guilt. How it affects the person who committed the offense. And so if you sin or you mess up or you make a mistake with someone, you see forgiveness as earning it. You say you're sorry enough or, or you change your ways enough or you outwork all the bad stuff. Maybe you made some mistakes earlier in life, but you've changed your ways and you're really philanthropic and you give to charity and you do all these things that have outweighed the bad. But the problem is, is did you ever actually pay for the offense? Forgiveness is not just simply the person who committed the offense feeling better. It's actually the offense itself being paid for. Imagine having like a brand new iPhone and like, it's so new, you had not even put the case on it yet. You're living dangerously. And your friend is like, hey, I want to look at your new iPhone. I've got like an iPhone 3. I want to see what this looks like. And they take your phone and they drop it on a rock and shatter your brand new phone. After you punch them in the face, you get yourself collected. And no matter how bad that person feels, someone has to pay for the phone, Right? Somebody's got to pay for it. Either that person gets all their money together and they pay for your phone, or you absorb the cost. You absorb the cost of not having a brand new iPhone, or you absorb the cost of paying for a new one. It's not just for the offended to always be the one who bears the weight of the offense, because make no mistake, when a sin occurs, someone bears the weight. And when we get beyond that, even to think about, think about the things that have happened to you, the sins that have been committed against you, the shame that you bear. What about those who experience real corruption and violence and injustice and abuse in the world? Don't we want their sins, the sins that have been committed against them to be taken care of? 
So you may have a problem with judgment, but does a world filled with violence and corruption bother you more? Does it hurt you? You have to remember that what was God's emotion, the way that we, for him to help us experience what he's experiencing, he said he grieved that he had to destroy the world. He regretted that he had made man. He was grieved to his heart. God was brokenhearted over the state of the world. But if there's no God, if there's, or if there's a God who doesn't actually judge or deal with sin justly, then there is no justice. There's no way to deal with corruption. There's no reason that you should even get angry or bitter when something bad happens because that's just the way the world's supposed to be. It would be completely and totally normal. There would be no hope for corruption because the world's just falling apart anyway, but none of us live that way. Even if you don't believe in Jesus this morning, you're here and you're exploring Christianity, we're really glad that you're here. You, You don't live that way. You don't live as if the world is just supposed to be violent and corrupt. But the problem is, as as Tim Keller says, if you don't believe there's a God who judges all things, there's no intellectual, emotional, or cultural objection you can have to a corrupt and violent world. But if you have siblings, you believe in judgment, okay? Because what happens when your sibling hits you? Mom, dad, you you run and go find mom or dad, because what are you wanting them to deal out? Judgment, justice. And if you're a good parent, you make a judgment. You, you, there's a consequence for the offender. It's usually the older sibling who hit the younger sibling because the younger sibling was pestering the older sibling. I was the older sibling. I got a lot of those. And there's justice for the one who got hit. Judgment creates room for forgiveness because both the offender and the offended can be satisfied But if a parent always said to the child who was hit, you just need to let it go. You just need to let go and let God. You know, you just need to, you know, what what, what are they communicating? You have to bear this. You have to bear the shame. You have to bear the pain. But what is God saying in the judgment? He's saying, I'm going to bear it. Whose world is this? It's God's world. We wrecked his world and God bears the cost of having to destroy his world and start over. God had to deal with evil and sin to make all things right. And we have attempted to do that on our own. We have attempted to make everything better by better morals or better systems or better education or thinking that we're evolving into better people. But we see also that God has a plan for rescue. We see in verse 14 that God says, he says to uh, to Noah, make yourself an ark of gopher wood, which would probably have been pine or cedar. He says, make it with with rooms um, in the ark so you can put different animals in different places. We'll get more of that in a little bit. Over it and and then uh, cover it with inside and out with pitch. Uh, This is how you're to make it. He gives him the description of what he's going to make. It's 300 cubits by 50 by uh, by 30, that's roughly about 450 feet by 75 feet wide by 45 feet tall. And he says, I want you to do all of this. I want you to put a door at the center in verse 16. I want you to have a roof that you can look out of because in verse 17, he says, I'm going to bring a flood of waters upon the earth to destroy all flesh. So why is God giving all of this detail to Noah? Well, I think it's partly giving that detail for us as well. I believe this is a real event. Now, this is a big question that many people bring to the book of Genesis is, did this really happen? Could this event really happen? 
And I believe it has, and we're going to do a Q&A on the 20th after the service. I think it's a great time to bring all of your weird Genesis questions. We'll try to answer them together. But I do believe that this is an event that would have happened, literally happened. Every culture across human history has traced memory of a great flood. Every one of them. Uh, in fact, I, I believe this was a global event. And, and we see in this, even there's detail that a boat was created that would float. If you look at the Babylonian and the Sumerian uh, myths about the great flood, they both uh, made a cube or a pyramid. Neither of those float. But if you talk to anyone who makes a boat, these were the dimensions of a wooden object that would float. There's scientific evidence that there may be more water below the earth's crust than there is in the ocean. But again, that's not the point of what's being said here. God is responding to a broken world. He's bringing this forth, and he wanted Noah to trust him as an act of faith. He gave him all this detail because he knew what he was asking him to do sounded just a little crazy. You can imagine Noah's sitting out there in the middle of the desert. He's got his, he went to Home Depot, got all of his lumber. He puts it all in the front yard. He's, he's starting to build up the ark, and his neighbors start to come by. Hey, Noah, what you doing? You building a tree house for your hundred old children, your old children? What are you, what are you doing here? And he, he's like, I'm, I'm building a giant boat. You can imagine the neighbors were like, good for you. Like, that sounds fun. Uh, let me know if you don't need any help. Like, I mean, that was, it would seem odd. God is giving him just enough detail to say, I want you to trust me. Noah trusted and believed, but God gave him enough to believe because faith is not just believing an abstract idea. It's not hoping against hope. It's not God asking us to leap into the dark. It's belief expressed through action and belief in something believable. Noah believed that he would be saved through this ark, that his people would be saved through this, that this was a means to rescue. But what ultimately is Noah hoping in? Is he hoping in the ark that he built? No, he's hoping in God's faithfulness. He's hoping in the promises of God, that God had been faithful to him, that as he walked with God, God had proven himself again and again. He had proven himself to be truthful, knowing that if God said a flood was going to come, a flood was going to come And for you and I, we can trust God with that same level of trust. We we can trust God because sometimes God tells you exactly what to do. He convicts you through his word. You read something in scripture and you go, "Mm, that was for me today. He convicts you, but oftentimes we don't want to trust him, do we? When God's asking you to give up something sinful that you cherish, when you're living in a way that doesn't accord with his ways or his will, what do we do? We often rationalize or justify out of fear or convenience, but God is saying, you can trust me. But sometimes we don't always see what's ahead. God didn't give Noah every single detail of what was going to happen. He said, I want you to trust me because I know what is ahead of you. Isaiah 26 says in verses 3 and 4, You keep him in perfect peace whose mind is stayed on you because he trusts in you. Trust in the Lord forever for the Lord God is an everlasting rock. Noah could trust God because God gave him a path to life. We see in verse 18, God makes his covenant with Noah. He says, I will establish my covenant with you and you shall come into the ark, you, your sons, your wife, and your sons' wives with you. Noah could trust God because God made a promise. A covenant is simply a promise. In the ancient world, when a king would overtake a smaller nation, he would make a covenant with that king's nation saying, I will be a benevolent ruler. You can trust me. 
Just live before me the way that I want you to live and I will protect you. In the same way, this language is used of God making a covenant with us. And this is the first one that we clearly see in the Bible. And I do believe there was a a covenant in creation that God made with all people that we are to live before him in, in the way that he wants us to live and he would be our God. And that every covenant we see from Noah, and we'll look at the one with Abraham, there's also one with Moses and David later on, are all just extensions of restoring that. It's this idea of saying God will protect us. We, we see God calls for us to, to enter into this covenant. He says, Noah, enter in. And in verse 1, he says, go into the ark, you and all your household, for I've seen that you are righteous before me in this generation. He tells him to enter into his rest, to enter into his grace. In verse 16 in chapter 7, we see God shutting them in and protecting them like a father. I'm going to deal with evil, but I'm going to protect you if you trust me. We see that he, that he provides for him in, in chapter 7, verse 2. Take with you seven pairs of all clean animals, male, the male and his mate. You may have read this passage before and thought it was always two and two, right? You know, male and female. Why would God give them seven pairs of clean and unclean animals? Well, they got to eat, right? Yeah, they they got to eat something. He wanted them to eat. He wanted them to be able to make sacrifice and continue to worship him. So we see this judgment coming as a result of a corrupt world. But secondly, we see that judgment brings new life. The flood was a reversal of creation and the beginning of a new one. The flood was a reversal of creation and the beginning of a new one. If you've ever watched water, water is incredible. I love to watch water. I was just down on the Cape, Matt Waldrop and I were having our elders retreat as we planned and prayed over the next year. And we took a moment and went down and went to the beach. And we just looked at the Cape, looked at the ocean, just how beautiful and still it was. Sometimes water can be peaceful, but water can also be destructive. I remember being in Oceana, West Virginia 20 years ago when a massive flood devastated an entire region, wiping entire towns off the map. A flood has unreal power to destroy. And so the flood would have been been a momentous occasion. If you look at chapter 7, verse 11, we actually get detail. It says, In the 600th year of Noah's life, in the second month, on the 17th day of the month, on that day, all the fountains of the deep burst forth. What's being described there is a specific date. Why Why would the writer of Genesis want them and us to know a specific date? This was a monumental day. When I say the word, you know, when I say 9-11 or September 11, 2001, immediately if you re- would know what I'm talking about. In the same way, they're, they're remembering the flood as this momentous day that everything else changed after that day. And what's happening in that is the actual uncreating of the world. In verse 11, it says that the, the, the deep burst forth and the windows of the heavens were open and rain fell upon the earth 40 days and What's interesting about that is what happened in Genesis chapter 1? What was one of the first things that God did? He separated the water above from the water below. And what's happening now? They're coming back together. This is the uncreation of the world. The world is, is crashing in on us. We're going from order to chaos. And we see the flood devastating the world because in verse 12, it says it happened for 40 days and 40 nights. And then if you look at verse 17, it said the flood continued 40 days on the earth. The waters increased and bore up the ark and it rose high above the earth. The waters prevailed and increased greatly on the earth. And the ark floated on the face of the waters and the waters prevailed so mightily on the earth that all the high mountains under the whole heaven were covered. 
The waters prevailed above the mountains, covering them 15 cubits deep. The word poured is there. The waters increased twice, prevailed three times, arose greatly and mightily. We see that they were on the earth so high, it was about 22 and a half feet above all mountains. And in verse 24, that it prevailed for 150 days. The world had become uncreated, but also life itself was uncreated. It's horrific. We talked about how we gloss over this, but in verse 21, it says, and all flesh died that moved on the earth, birds, livestock, beasts, all swarming creatures that swarm on the earth and all mankind. Everything on the dry land whose nostrils was the breath of life died. He blotted out every, sing- every living thing that was on the face of the ground, man and animals and creeping things and birds of the heavens that were blotted out from the earth. Every animal, every person who did not trust in what Noah was doing, that God was doing through Noah, died. But we need to see that sin was already doing that. Back in chapter 6, verse 12, that word corrupt means destroyed, rotted. Everything was already destroyed. So judgment was was not doing something that wasn't already done. It was the recognition of what had happened. My granddad, we called him Granddaddy Maryland because he lived in Maryland outside of D.C., worked at the Pentagon. Um, I saw him only a few times in my life. I remember as a kid, we used to call him a bear because he sounded like this really gruff, deep bear. My, my brother uh, actually called him a bear to his face. We haven't seen my brother since. Um, and, uh, and, but I remember his house, and I remember uh, uh, my, my dad telling me a story after he had passed away of how in his older age he had gotten uh, sick and how um, he had started to have dementia, and he just kind of let his house go to waste, and mold began to form in the basement. And, and as mold formed in the basement, mold began to go up the walls to the point that when the bank came after he died, the house was completely worthless. And so my dad and my brothers just said, you can, you can have it. it. It wasn't that the bank taking the house or them giving the house to the bank made the house corrupt. The house was already corrupt. Corruption of sin and evil destroys everything and judgment is a recognition of that. Think think about greed. Greed consumes what would ultimately be a blessing to other people or what could alleviate suffering. Judging that is not making it greedy. It, It is already what it is. Selfishness stifles joy. It creates isolation. Sin has to be judged so we can cleanse what's corrupt. But it's not just uncreation. It's not just judgment, but judgment also makes way for life. We see a new creation come forth. God is starting over with Noah, with his sons, Shem and Ham and Japheth. And there's this new family that's supposed to come and do what, Noah, what Adam had failed to do. If you look back at chapter 6, verse 19, we see pairs uh, of animals coming. And of every living thing, all flesh, you shall bring two of every sort into the ark to keep them alive with you. Think back to creation. What was Adam supposed to do? Just to name creation. In the same way, Noah is saving creation. God's starting a renewed world, and God is so committed to his goodness, so committed to the goodness of the world that he's willing to purge the world. He's willing to cleanse it of evil. Alan Ross talks about how this shows the power of God over something so powerful. He says, water was the natural way of purging and cleansing. The water would not only destroy wickedness, but it would wash the world clean so that it could begin afresh. It was used by God to replicate the situation at creation. Destruction can bring new life. 
My, my wife's from Alaska, and I didn't understand this until I moved there, but wildfires are actually good for nature. And a wildfire will go and it will burn away everything that all the underbrush and all the things that's actually stifling life. Judgment can have a way, a way in our lives. When God convicts us, he actually may just be wanting to purge things out of our life that are keeping us from new life. So what might God be wanting to purge out of your life? What, what might he be trying to renew or, or bring your focus back to? The last idea this morning is what the flood reveals. The flood reveals the salvation requires judgment. In the flood, God judges sin, but he also honors righteousness. He honors the righteousness of Noah. Back in chapter 6, verse 9, he describes Noah as a righteous man, blameless in his generation, that he walked with God. K.A. Matthew says this, this approval of Noah is not saying that he is sinless, but he does not behave as the wicked of his day. And Noah is a cut above, and God is going to use him for the salvation of the world. And in chapter 6, verse 22, we see that because of this, Noah did all that God commanded. And for doing so, he was counted as righteous before God. God, by his grace, through faith, counted Noah as righteous because righteousness was required to enter the ark. It was required for them to enter into God's rest. It was required for them to enter into salvation. But notice who's also there with Noah. Every time Noah's mentioned entering the ark, we see it again in chapter 6, verse 18, that it was you, your sons, your wife, and your sons' wives with you. The question is, on whose righteousness did they enter the ark? Not their own. On Noah's righteousness. It was on his faith. And one of the big questions people often ask about the story is about what about all these other people in the world? What about them? Did they not have an opportunity? If you look at 2 Peter chapter 2, verse 5, it says, if he did not spare the ancient world, but preserved Noah, a herald or a preacher of righteousness with seven others when he brought a flood upon the world of the ungodly, Noah spent over a hundred years telling everybody who would listen to him that there is a judgment coming. And if you just trust and believe that God is actually working through me, you can be saved too. I believe any person who would have wanted to enter in through Noah's righteousness could have done so. And it's the same way for us because we don't enter into salvation on our own good works. We don't enter into the ark of salvation upon our righteousness, but upon the righteousness of another. See, the flood is a pattern for the ultimate solution. It's not the solution. Because here's where Jesus is the better Noah and the better ark. Jesus took all the judgment upon himself. He took all the wrath, all the fury, all the suffering because sin had to be judged. And because of Jesus' righteousness, Jesus' right standing before the Father, we can enter in through faith in him. We enter the door. What did Jesus say in John chapter 10, verses 7 through 11? He says, truly, truly, I say to you, I am the door. I am the door of the sheep. All who came before me are thieves and robbers, but the sheep did not listen to them. I am the door. If anyone enters by me, he will be saved and will go in and out and find pasture. The thief comes to steal and kill and destroy. I came that they may have life and have it abundantly. I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. 
Jesus is the way to enter God's salvation. And every single one of us have to deal with the impending judgment to come. And, and the question is, is, how are you viewing that day? Some of us are avoiding it. It's like C.S. Lewis talked about, it's about the man on the train reading the newspaper and someone asked the man, where are we heading? He's like, I don't know, I'm just gonna read my paper. Many of us are going through life like that. We're avoiding and ignoring and then denying that there's an, one day when all things are gonna be made right and it includes all the things that we've done. Some of us are trusting in our own goodness or our own righteousness that when we approach the door, we can say, God, look at all the good things that I've done. But as we talked about last week, evil resides in the human heart too. There's only one way to enter, and that's through the finished work of Jesus who died upon the cross for your sins, that anyone who repents and trusts him will be saved. Let's pray.